0: Kick the jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick
1: the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> I think that, a new thing is I'm gonna I'm going to fuck it up each time. And by fuck it up, I mean really... Get it spicy! Yeah, make it better. Improve yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Experimentation. <laughs> yeah, experimentation is important as we will like, learn. Like I've been, in I've been, uh, mm-hmm. I've been experimenting a lot um, in the spices I use when I make eggs. So this will kind of be like uh, that. Uh, I, use, I use garam masala today.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> garam masala is such a multi-use spice that we don't use enough for other stuff very true let's talk about this for half an hour and have all of reddit be so mad at us and be exactly. like we thought we were listening to a podcast about cindy lopper and her formative album she's so unusual from 1984
1: yeah let's it'll be the most fruitless um troll of all time yeah like no one wins no and one wins yeah seriously because
0: we want to talk about this album
1: yeah, that'll be super punk rock.
0: This is yeah, it will be really punk rock. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is your favorite podcast. It's a podcast where we delve into an album of the week. This week it's Cindy Lopper's album, she's so unusual, which we're very excited to talk about. Please rate us and review us on iTunes uh and on all the other podcatchers where you get your podcasts. That would be super super nice we would love it if you would do that. Uh, and also follow us on all social media. You can find us at kick the jukebox and other, you know, all those places. Uh, and you can suggest albums for us to do and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So Kyle, Amen, brother. how are you? You're good. <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but as I was saying, uh, you know, I look forward to this podcast every week. It's so much fun. Uh, Work sucks, but, uh, you know, we're hanging in there. Yeah, you know,
0: absolutely. You know, while capitalism is completely collapsing around us. Hey, fingers crossed. I know. Seriously, it just makes, it really makes just toil that much more stupid, doesn't it? You know? (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it feels a bit dystopian.
0: Yes, it does. Uh, You know, but we're holding it together by sort of, we were saying today, escaping into nostalgia. Mm. Uh, and and by listening to a lot of music
1: yes absolutely
0: what and been, uh what
1: have you been listening to this week so um one good thing is um i've been running a lot more which has really helped me get outside and clear my mind i enjoy it but usually when i run i listen to um podcasts sure is usually the thing i listen to when i run just sort of to take my mind off the pain of running um but This week, it's been nice. I've kind of been introducing a steady diet of music into my running, um, which I really enjoyed. And uh, the past few days, I've kind of been listening to a lot of like uh, when I run, you know, because of the beat, I think I've been I've noticed I run faster when I listen to music too. it is Uh, proven in studies
0: that people are more motivated to run specifically if they are listening to music at the right tempo
1: interesting yeah Mm. because i well because i time you know i time every run and i i mean i literally do run at a faster pace when i'm listening to music as opposed to listening to a podcast um but i've been listening to a lot of disco and specifically like italo disco yes and so i just want to give a shout out to my favorite a tallow disco song, Hey, Hey Guy by Ken Laszlo, nice. uh, which starts with this incredible like spoken word um, kind of skit thing where he's on the phone with a lover, but it's also himself. Uh-huh. So he's doing both voices and he, uh, the English, he, this man does not speak English, <laughs> but he's speaking in English. And uh, he, I just want to give a shout out to the phrase he says, I love you and feel groove. Oh, that's such a Kyle
0: phrase. I love you and feel groove. I mean, that reminds me. I've talked about this on the podcast before. uh, When I saw the first time I saw Giorgio uh, uh, Moroder play DJ, who's the Italo disco king, and he Mm. just shouted out near the end of the set, Disco music is the best music. It is the most fun music to dance to with your friends. (laughs) (laughs) And he's he's not wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.
1: That's a masterpiece. (laughs) I know. I know. And it's just like, it's clearly like,
0: like he (sighs) speaks English perfectly well, but it's clearly coming from like someone who has English as a second language. Yes. Yes, And it's like this pure sentiment that is really uh i feel like is just so it's so true and and so like beautiful and and correct
1: oh my god yeah there's something unique about specifically the italians bastardizing english that is like flawless yes that's true it's like that um song
0: that you know that's called like uh, I'll, i'll put it in the notes for this episode um it's it's uh, gibberish, but it's from an Italian singer, and it's supposed to sound like English. Do you know this song? No. It's really cool. It's actually a really good song. It's super yeah. well written, uh, but it's like very very strange uh, and sounds like English if you can't understand any of the words. But it does sound like <laughs> English. It's really interesting, that's um, and it like has like a nonsensical title that's like like Favus Sin soul, or something like that, which is why I, like, can't, I can't even pronounce the name. But,
1: but I'll, um, I'll definitely have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'll put it in the notes for this episode. Uh, so yeah, on our website, uh, kickthejudebox.com and you can look at it. Look at it.
1: Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, what have you been listening to?
0: I just want to give a shout out this week to the fact that uh, one of my favorite bands, the uh, very important LA punk rock band X, mm. Released a new album this week and surprised all of us with it. Uh, It was supposed to come out in a few months and they were just like, fuck it. Everybody needs to hear this right now. It's the quarantine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I saw you posted that. Yeah, so it's called Alphabet Land. It's the first new album that has all four original members playing on it in 35 years. Wow. And it's great. It's really good. And it sounds like classic X that's cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting. Um and uh also just a shout out to uh Wayne White who's a designer who designed the the cover which is just this really wonderful painting of like a decaying lot in America with like a weird sign <laughs> that's <laughs> the uh that's the title of the album Alphabet Land, like a weird decaying like and he he was a set designer for Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, mm, yeah, I'm uh, looking at it now, that's cool. Yeah, and uh I feel like it ties into it's nice that they used him just because and this is a whole other episode, but like that like thrift store reverential uh-huh. uh, aesthetic that I feel is really part of like my sort of the way that I think of things artistically, and then is so much part of, you know, I learned that really from A lot of musicians and comedians and artists that were specifically in LA in the early '80s,
1: and not to uh, force the comparison, but I think uh, the woman who we're talking about today definitely fits into that aesthetic as well. Yeah, very much so. uh, Sort of from an East Coast
0: perspective, right? Yeah, but you know, Cyndi Lauper, she sang the theme song for Pee Wee's Playhouse, Playhouse. so it it all totally makes sense. So Yeah. yeah, so let's start talking about. This album she's so unusual. This is kind of interesting. This is an interesting one for us cuz it was so crazy successful. Uh-huh. We normally aren't as interested in delving into stuff that's this popular and for me I kind of have to keep reminding myself how hugely popular this album is and how right. how successful Cindy Lopper is as an artist. Right. She's currently uh, the like she's the 435th most listened to artist on Spotify,
1: really wide. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. I wouldn't have thought, still, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, neither would I have, absolutely.
0: But it shows that this album, specifically because it's really the singles from this album that I think are being listened to the most still, uh, it was just it left such an imprint on so many people and was so influential and now I think feels quite timeless which I think uh-huh. we should get into I think that it's yes. it's actually a very interesting example of an evergreen album uh-huh. yeah and and she herself is really such a beloved figure in the the world of pop
1: music yes right I think it's, like, one of those few people who is just, like, unambiguously beloved by kind of everyone. Yes, which
0: is also quite interesting because uh-huh. her sort of ragtag assemblage of aesthetics, her yep. strange look, uh, yep. which was sort of like... For the time, say, now
1: I feel like it's, like... I mean, she. I would say she, more than anyone else, kind of brought that like thrift store chic thing to the mainstream. I, you know, and like now, now it's more common, but at the time, I mean, she was the first to really do it in a a mainstream way.
0: Yeah. In a really big, absolutely. In a really big noticed way, Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of, you know, I describe it as like tattered, thrift store prom dresses right, that exactly. almost kind of fit her like corsets right e, you know well, no, she would
2: wear
1: corsets she would yeah wear, like, corsets, corsets
0: over top um right which created some really interesting lines on her body uh mm-hmm. and and um you know big necklaces and 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 bracelets and uh sort of very loud and a very celebratory way to dress and, yeah, and, and like non-tackiness too Fun, tacky, yeah, tacky, campy. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wasn't really a a a sex icon, which is kind of interesting. She she kind of had her own stuff going for her. She was pretty, but she was really she really became a star through
1: the sheer force of her personality. Well, I think that's a really good point, and I think she, I mean, as someone and we'll kind of get into this. Like, she kind of emerged as like a feminist icon, but you know, her this album came out late '83 kind of blew up early 84. Yeah. Um and right around the same time that Madonna was blowing up too and she they were frequently compared to each other cuz yep. they were like the huge pop it girls. Um but you know, Cindy Lauper even kind of resented the fact that they would use Cyndi Lauper as a cudgel against Madonna for being like, why do you have to use speaking about Madonna? Like, why do you have to use sex to sell? Look at Cindy Lauper. She doesn't need to use sex. And she kind of resented that, you know, comparison. Definitely. Um, but I mean, that was, that was the image. It was like, you know, we have these two uh, huge female pop stars Madonna is the sex one, and Cyndi Lauper is the cute, quirky one. Yeah, the one who just wants to have fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so just to
0: shout out, before, I think we should talk a little bit more about her beginnings, uh, Cyndi Lauper's beginnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was styled by a designer named Patrick Lucas for mm-hmm. all this stuff. Uh, and the album cover was shot by Annie Leibovitz. Mm-hmm. And was sort of in old, dilapidated uh, Coney Island. Yeah, I think it's kind of important. I feel like that sort of lends itself to the sort of reclaiming what is old as being new again. For you know sure. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So she
1: she grew up in Queens, in Ozone and ha- Park, and has one of the most incredible, strongest New York accents I've ever heard yes
0: she (laughs) sounds like
1: her New York
0: accent was invented by the Fleischer brothers as they worked (laughs) on an
1: early Betty Boop cartoon yeah and she does a little (laughs) bit of a Betty Boop thing on this album
0: yeah so she's so or he's so unusual is a cover of a 1920s song by a singer named Helen Kane who was the inspiration for Betty Boop so there's a connection there and apparently, you know, uh, Cindy Lauper used to do impressions specifically of Helen Kane singing that Betty Boop impressions and impressions of Ethel Merman, oh, which wow. is fun too for her uh, band members uh, sort of in the downtime. And that's why uh, they recorded that. <laughs> which that's is, great. Which is really fun. <laughs> so yeah, so she grew up pretty working class in, in Queens uh, I feel like her beginnings are really similar to the Ramones, who grew up in mm. Forest Hills, or just a stone's throw away. At the same time, mm-hmm. a-, a lot of the same influences as well. She was super into the Brill Building sound. She cites Ellie Greenwich uh, as a as an influence and um, Ronnie Spector mm-hmm. uh, as an
1: influence, which like makes a lot of sense. You know, and before it, Cindy Lauper, when she had her band Blue Angels, which yes. we can talk about in a second, they recorded a few real building songs. They certainly did, yeah, yeah. Uh so yeah, so
0: she she kind of had it somewhat rough uh growing up. She her childhood was was difficult. Uh she had a somewhat abusive step uh stepfather, which she left home to to deal with him, to get the fuck away from him. Um, it took her up to Canada for some soul-searching and then into Vermont before she ended up uh, forming Blue Angel, which was, like, you know, described as, like, a new wave rockabilly band. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, Blue Angel, uh, I would say her vocals are good on it, but I've listened to some Blue Angel, and they're really nothing to write home about. Right. Yeah, they're, there's... A, there's, there's, there's not a lot of a spark there and it might mm-hmm. have to do with the wrong people calling the shots as, yeah. as we'll learn through the story of this album. <laughs> um, she also grew up, this is just, I think, really so much part of her story and we'll talk about all this. Her sister Ellen was, is gay and Cyndi Lauper grew up to be just like a huge, huge advocate for LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and she considers her sister a major role model and I think it's interesting because I do think that a lot of what Cyndi Lauper does on this album specifically is like a very subtle queering of specific songs that were not queer with hmm. other artists singing them, hmm. uh, which, we, which we will talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, so Blue Angel released one album. It did very poorly. Then... Um, they wanted decided to drop their manager who was doing no good for them. And then he sued them for like eighty thousand dollars, which mm-hmm. forced the band to break up, which is a real dick move.
1: Yes. It's dreadful. Yeah. Um, and, like these are starving artists. Like these are not Yeah, this, this is s- not a successful band to begin with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like this was a real, real gross thing to do. Um She and she ended up uh, as a as a waiter in IHOP. She was working at IHOP. She was singing in cover bands to make ends meet in the city, Um, where then she was discovered by uh, her manager Gary Wolf, who really liked her and liked her. She had a unique look. She'd been dressing in thrift store clothes and dyeing her hair since she was a teenager, which she was apparently bullied for pretty mercilessly apparently the kids used to throw rocks at her and then she sort of had her pick of the litter for record deals people got really excited about her kind of quickly it's it's one of those like overnight success stories took 10 years kind of thing
1: exactly and that's what's really interesting about this album especially uh unfortunately but you know for female artists, she was 30 when this album came out, which yeah. is like a dinosaur in female pop stardom days from from that time, you know? I mean, let alone now. Um, so it's kind of awesome and incredible that she was able to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, um, and her career, and then she's been able to maintain this steady career since then, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. She wasn't really a flash in the pan. She's had a few other... Big hits on other albums, you know, including True Colors and I Drove All Night, which is yep. like one of my big faves. I drove all night, and then um, then she's had a, sort of a whole other career. She's acted, she wrote all the music with Harvey Firestein for a Broadway show called Kinky Boots, where they uh-huh. won a bunch of Tonys. Yep, and she's she's been nominated for. 15 Grammys. <laughs> yeah. So she's, she's really is, yeah, universally beloved. Um, And this story now, it feels like she's so part of the pop culture firmament mm. that it makes sense to us that she's so beloved. But like, that wasn't a given. And oh, I, no. I think yeah. this album is incredibly strange. Yes. And I think that it hit at exactly the right time and is really, really smart. But uh, if it had come out a year earlier or a year later, I just don't think it would have had the success that it it would have had.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, so um, the studio musicians on this album is I think it's important are Eric Bazilian and Rob Hyman, who are from like a like a rock power pop band called The Hooters.
1: The Hooters and uh, yeah, we uh, they are. They were kind of like a backing band for a lot of 80s acts around this time. Yeah. um, And wrote a lot of songs with a lot of bands. And just very quickly, the Hooters, they're named after the melodica that was like, a, I guess, the big part of their band. And uh, uh, foreshadowing, we get a little sneak peek of that Hooter on uh, Money Changes Everything. That's correct.
0: Yeah, the the melodica – it functions in a few different songs uh, on yep. this album, but it's pretty prominent on Money Changes Everything. Yeah. Uh, and then it was produced by Rick Chetoff, who was started as like an A&R guy, uh, I think working at Arista, mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to become like a pretty prominent producer and songwriter. And he co-wrote Shebop with Cyndi yep. Lauper for this album. Uh, and he had been working with the Hooters on a lot of stuff for a while. Um, and then, uh, Peter Wood on drums. And then this guy who I, has played on a lot of other session stuff. And also is like a filmmaker and a writer. He's kind of a jack of all trades. His name is Richard Termini. Mm -hmm. And he's the keyboardist for this album. And I think that he in my opinion is kind of an unsung hero of this record Hmm. because specifically I think the keyboards on this album are very forward-thinking and unique I I can't name a lot of other pop records from the time that have such a weird ethereal smart keyboard layer on the tracks on like literally all of them pretty much too um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, they, and they really uh, make the arrangements so distinct, especially as we get into talking about how the songs that we're talking about today are actually all covers of other artists' songs. Mm-hmm. And I think that the keyboards are one of the main components that make it shine. So I just wanted to focus on him for a second. Big time. Yeah. So Cyndi Lauper was the first uh, woman to have four top five hits from one album. Mm-hmm. which is fucking wild. Yep. And, um, you know, some of the songs, we're not going to talk about it other than just mentioning it now, but she wrote this song called Shebop,
2: mm-hmm, which yeah. is
0: a very sexually playful forward-thinking song for the time.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's about know-
1: female... On it, uh, I mean... I would say it's it's about female masturbation. That is yes. exactly what it's about. Yes, that is that's what it's about.
2: <laughs> and
0: not only that, but she mentions you know uh, masturbating to the pictures in uh, Blue Boy magazine. Yes, which is a gay porno yeah. Yeah, from the time. Yeah, um, yeah. which is really. Uh, That's very interesting for a straight identified woman to do that in a song about masturbating from 1984. Uh, And then, you know, also to talk about her really, uh, you know, unabashedly sort of queering her work on this album as well. She covers Prince's song, When You Were Mine, Mm -hmm. and then doesn't change the pronouns, which changes the song and makes it about uh, her boyfriend leaving her for a man
1: which is uh, lovely, which is yeah. really
0: nice. Um, I, know, I didn't
1: even real. I didn't think about
0: that. Yeah, yeah, and she just doesn't change the pronouns. Uh, and apparently, it. you know, Prince loved it. Prince thought it was really cool. I and mean, there's also that lovely line in it that is also Flip's, You know, um, when you were mine, I used to let you wear all of my clothes. Yeah. And that's really funny when Prince sings it for a lot of reasons. And it's also funny for, like, a bunch of different reasons when Cindy Lauper sings (laughs) it. And, like, that's cool, you know? Yes. Yes. So, yeah. um, So, she ended up signing to Epic uh, for this album because they didn't have a female artist, which is so smart. Mm-hmm. uh they knew she knew that they would really um promote her and put a lot of oomph into her which they
1: did and uh also i think she was specifically signed to the subsidiary portrait uh-huh. which also released um shout out to our previous episodes which everyone should go back and listen to the sade album diamond life those i these did were not like know that that big, is so cool yeah these are like the two big portrait records albums
0: that's fascinating because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways there's such a different sound to both of them and such a different market as well. Yeah. But I I think that she and Sade, you know, really have a lot in common in terms of sort of this singular <laughs> set of aesthetics, you know. Yes.
1: A very specific, um, unusual sound that became mainstream. You know? Yeah. There weren't many other people who sounded like them. At the like they brought a sound to the mainstream. Yes, absolutely.
0: So here she is, sort of this weirdo thrift storage corset wearing dyed hair woman with a squeaky voice with an you know weird eight octave range.
2: Yeah.
0: Here she is, um, singing songs, you know, pop songs about her boyfriend leaving her for a man and wearing mm-hmm. her clothes and her masturbating to gay porn and a host of other strange subjects doing weird uh, you know, Betty Boop impressions, you know, <laughs> and this album just becomes this like top seller. And it's just such an example of just a, a sort of a singular artistic vision, but the beginning recording sessions were not like fraught with a lot of conflict but she had to find her voice and she had to speak up for herself within the confines of working with these like this all male team of session musicians and this and this male um this 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 male producer mm-hmm. uh who didn't really know how they didn't really know how much musical knowledge she had and they kind of wrote her off until they started working with her and they they realized that her um her uh uh instincts were like really smart and mm-hmm. it, it changed you know the, the way the album was being recorded as it as it continued. Mm. Um which I think takes us to the first song on the record we want to talk about, which is the the opener of the album, uh, which was also one of the first tracks recorded for the album, Money Changes Everything. Yes, indeed. So Kyle, listen, list? Yeah, let's okay. listen to it. So for this Kick the Jukebox, this is going to be fun. We're going to do something a little different. Oh, yes, right. First, you're going to hear the original versions of the songs because all three of these songs actually were written by other people and recorded and were covers by other people. Um, or it were, were covered by Cyndi Lauper and her group to show really how she took these songs and singularly made them her own. So you're, originally, you're first going to hear... Uh, a version of Money Changes Everything that was written by Tom Gray for his band The Brains, who were kind of like a guitar rock, somewhat power poppy like band from Atlanta. But
2: right. this
0: was only released like a few years before, I think 82. This song. So let's listen to a little bit of Money Changes Everything. And then you're going to hear some of Cindy's version of it. So this one was your pick. Uh, I love it. It's such a good album opener. Why? Did, why was this the one that you wanted to hear?
1: Um, I mean, I think it just kicks it off with a bang. I think as we kind of discussed, or as we mentioned, all the songs that we're talking about today are covers. And I think personally, um, this the, the of the originals that we uh, cover. I think this one's the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, the Brains song is, like, it's fine. Um, Agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, not a bad song. It's a lot more... It's guitar first. And I think a really cool and smart choice that she made and they made in her version was it's definitely... It definitely has a strong uh, guitar foundation, but it is, like, that synth... And multiple different synth sounds, like, kick you in the face. And it is a really fun, strong synth sound. I think it's a great way also to lead off the album just musically because in a lot of ways, this is like a new wave transition album from maybe the more guitar based stuff that I love, but that was kind of like early post punk, late seventies, early eighties, to like more of a synthier new wave sound. And I think this is like a really good melding of those two sounds in one song. And also, the song is just huge. Like this is a big, um, this song is big.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the production has a lot of room, right? Which I think is is so cool like and like booming. Yeah, it kind. I think it owes like a lot to like a wall of sound, Phil Spector sound. Mm. This 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 song specifically. Um, and yeah, this is the one that balances, I think, the best sort of these like. Bigger, more mainstream production tendencies. Yeah, with with sort of this stranger, more space space age robotic like new wave sound. You yeah. know, and I think this I think this is the one that is the most radio friendly. Which is interesting that it wasn't the biggest hit from the album. Yeah, because I do think this is the one that sounds the most like a single from 1984. Do you know right. what I mean?
1: for sure. Yeah, and I think um well, I think that may have just had to do with the fact that it was like the fourth single. I mean, sometimes later singles can be uh can be bigger, but I mean like this album also had a very long life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was uh I think it stayed on the the Billboard 200 for like uh or like even in the top 40 something like that for like 64 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, this thing uh lasted a long long time and um i think that just may have had something to do with it too
0: yeah absolutely uh a few little fun facts about this Uh, i don't know if you if you know this but the main thing that she requested in the arrangement was she wanted guitars that sounded like london calling by the clash
1: yes well Mm -hmm. i i uh I don't know if you heard this too so she said like in making this album the two kind of sounds that she was kind of straddling in her head was the clash and the police mm-hmm. and uh i think you can hear it, i think definitely the police in terms of there's some more reggae elements kind of later yeah, in the which album. we're going to talk about for sure which yeah. i like yeah yes yeah and yeah and um and I don't think this sounds like a police album, but I think there are songs that definitely, like, you hear the influence. And I think definitely in kind of, like, that shimmery, uh, trebly um guitar, sh- the shimmery guitar sound, you can definitely hear some police.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's so interesting because... The police are persona non grata on kick the (laughs) jukebox. Yeah. But
1: in terms of...
0: That doesn't mean you can't
1: be influenced by them and make a great album like
0: this. That's absolutely correct. And uh, I think that they brought a lot of musical concepts, like, you know, a lot of musical concepts that are reggae, you know, reggae sounds to a mainstream. And I think that Cindy and her team on this album, I think, embraced them so well. Yes, uh, you know. right. Absolutely. Uh, and then also just, this is another one, this is, this is a little more subtle, but I think that her, um, this is another one that's written from a male perspective that she flips to be about a female perspective. And I think that it has a very different type of uh, intent, singing it from a female perspective about sort of men um, trying to court women through their money. Yeah. You know? and well I a, think it, it's an eighties statement. It's a very eighties, you know, in a very smooth operator Sade
1: kind of way, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, good tie back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I definitely I mean I think the lyrics are so um like kind of they hit you over the head, but they're also like really interesting and evocative. And I think that's a really good point. Like, I think the original song sounds something like a gold digger type message, uh, which is like not as compelling where, but when she sings it, it's kind of that like begrudging realization that you have maybe in your early twenties that like, you know, fuck people really, all they care about is money. And, um, you know, it's like I'm just gonna have to put up and accept with, you know, like it's it's a struggle, and maybe you just have to put up with it and accept the fact that this world like sucks in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's such a statement, specifically for the early '80s.
1: Yes. When,
0: right. You know, and and that's that that also or in I think Reagan is, land. Yeah. A bigger a bigger idea that I have from this album, I just feel like this album is actually a pretty big, brash, sharp rebuke of like Reagan conservatism
2: in oh, general,
0: yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting how popular it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she's so New York. And right. I would argue to say that she's so East village, you know? Yeah. For, and, for sure. and, but, but for some reason it just, it just hit with, the entire country just kind of got whole what she world, was about like this here. was a global smash absolutely yeah you know and, and we'll talk about there's some interesting um brand synergy that happened with this record that I want to talk about <laughs> in a in a while um which I think contributed to that but it's still it's still interesting that she's coming from sort of such a I think an anti-establishment point of view Thank and you. created something that was so embraced and, and became so, so, so considered such a part of like 80s mainstream culture. For sure. Yeah. So the next song, All Through the Night, my, was my choice. Uh, It's a song that was only released, you know, previous that year by a songwriter named Jewel Shear, who like is considered like Kind of, you know, he's like a New Englandy, like sort of like white guy songwriter compared to like Randy Newman. Um,
1: yeah, you know, I think I think yeah. also of all the um, of all the originals. Apparently, this song was well liked at the time from yeah. like, music people who knew about it. It wasn't a big hit or anything. No, uh, I think this I heard I first heard this song literally today. The original. And uh, I think it's pretty bad. I agree. <laughs> I, I think that it is not particularly
0: interesting. Apparently the vocal line on it reminded Cyndi Lauper of the Beatles. Mm. She liked um, who she was a fan of, which is interesting. I don't totally hear that in this. I'm having a hard time making that leap. I think It's, it's a little very more-
1: bouncy, which maybe w- couldn't harken back to some of the sillier Beatles songs yes know.
0: that's fair yeah i mean it's beatlesy if we're talking about like octopus's garden you know <laughs> yeah. but like that's not really what i associate with the beatles you know right no and no, i'm not throwing shade at ringo i love ringo i'm not <laughs> we I'm love not ringo doing that here. on this podcast ringo's the best ringo's mm-hmm. clearly the best Beatle. but um yeah and and then also too something that they do and and you'll hear this in in the two versions of the song you're about to hear is that the original version maintains this very consistent tempo, and then for the the Cyndi Lauper version of the song, they choose to slightly slow down the uh, the verses and they make mm-hmm. them just a little more ballady. Mm. And then I think that it really makes the chorus hit a little stronger, and the those reggae influences super shine through, yeah, uh, as well. Yeah, so let's listen to it. Let's listen to, uh, first a little bit of the Jewel Shear version and then a little bit of the, the Cyndi Lauper version. Here we go. All through the night. This time around, uh, something that I'm really struck by is how
1: integral the keyboard line is to making the song really shine. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, you can't... I, that's kind of the first thing I think of when I think of the song.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so once again, you know, shout out to Richard Termini on keys <laughs> on this. But <laughs> Richard I, Termini on the motherfucking keys. On the motherfucking keys, <laughs> yeah. But, but I think that... The opening is so much more powerful just being basically two keyboard lines and her voice.
2: Yes.
1: You know, I think it makes the song so dynamic, especially as you mentioned, like the places this song kind of goes. Yeah, absolutely. It makes
0: it more dynamic. Absolutely. And I think it makes it more powerful. I think it brings out the strength in the the lyric writing quite a bit more as Uh well and then on the chorus and this is really fun, you know, Jules Shear the original songwriter is singing backups on this on the chorus for Cindy Lauper, mm-hmm. which is fun and then they also ended up writing Kiss You together for mm. this album um, which was her first time writing a song with a total stranger Interesting
1: um, Yeah, That's and my it, least favorite
0: song on the album too <laughs> Yeah, I don't mind it, I don't mind Kiss You I think Kiss You's really fun um, uh-huh. uh, but I think that He's he's really odd. He um, <laughs> yeah. is kind of a recluse and he like never really wanted to play the rock and roll game and apparently he's quite loved in certain songwriting circles and like music production circles, but he never really hit.
1: Yeah. Uh and That's so interesting.
0: Yeah, and I read some interviews with him this week in prep for this podcast, and like he seems like fine with it. <laughs> like, yeah. He's, right. like, he's like, I just he's like, I just really collect residuals from all through the night and <laughs> I live with my wife and we release albums together like that seems to be kind of he's like he's like in one interview he's like it's great i get a check every month like <laughs> yeah. and he's like working with them was nice
1: i liked their version of it you know like i mean to be fair like when someone covers your i think it you know if i were putting myself in his shoes i would like the fact and i think he said he liked the fact that her version is so much different than his. It's radically different. Yes, yeah, and I think he appreciated that. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a rip-off, but no. I,
0: don't think any, I don't think anything on this album feels like a rip-off. I think that's no. kind of one of the thesis things about this album is no. that it doesn't 100% feel like, you know, that they're just aping off of these unsuccessful artists. It feels instead like they've kind of done this crate digging and found these gems of songs. And right. then they just sit so well on her. Right. Um, and then the other thing too, I think about the keyboard in this and the way that the chorus unfolds is it like really takes it into like a really light like dub direction.
1: Yeah, for sure. Which,
0: yeah, which I think it does the song a huge favor where the original version of it is just kind of this like milk toasty, like white dude reggae thing.
1: Yeah, which I, is, I, which I is why I hate to, about the police. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was listening to listening back, and I was like, "Oh, you know what that is? It's obla it's di." Oh, Oblade. that's
0: interesting. That's what she was hearing. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. I didn't. Re- yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which is just Paul McCartney being like, "I've heard of this new thing called ska music."
1: Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. But the, in his song, the Jules Shear songs. Like, you know, that's what I hear. Yeah, totally. That totally makes sense. That's, yeah, I, I agree with
0: that, Kyle, like 100%. So, yeah, so so those are our two individual picks. Uh, also, just want to give a shout out to Time After Time, which oh, yeah. she, she co-wrote. And is this, like, fucking serious, beautiful, lush, sweeping, you know, eternal ballad. Eternal um, ballad. Yep. It's... It's brilliant, and the label was so into it that they wanted to release it as the first single, and Cyndi Lauper said, you know, no, I don't think that's a good idea. She was really smart about it. She was like, because she thought it should be a single, but not the first one, because it's not representative of the entire album. So instead, she handpicked our last song we're going to talk about today, which is the, like... Huge! You can't you, you can't escape
1: it. Girls just want to have fun. One of the biggest songs ever recorded by anyone a, anywhere. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and one of the
0: best. You know, I wrote I wrote a uh, musical that is about a single that can cause world peace. <laughs> and let me tell you, this would be on my top ten list of songs that could perhaps co- create world peace. You know, that's not that crazy. Yeah, in 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 like in like culture's universal love of it um but she needed to sort of be pushed to record this this was recorded later on after everybody was feeling comfortable together this was later on in the in the in the sessions for this album and it's because she was not a fan of the lyrical content of it which is sort of so it was written by a, a songwriter named um robert hazard who I, I i would describe as kind of a elvis costello light
1: that's exactly yeah okay like, so that's fair it's like elvis costello-y with like a little more like punky kind of vocals yes
0: yeah and um He's i think like like american elvis, elvis costello light totally yeah and and i i like his version of the song he cut this as a demo he never released it um but the lyrics are like pretty sexist like it's it's kind of a in his hands
1: it's kind of a a, a song about like loose women <laughs> yeah right it's like you know the it, the, the interesting line is like um which, uh he says uh, uh like hi, you know boys like uh hide your girls away from the rest of the world mm-hmm. it's pretty much being like you know guys mm-hmm. like let's just like you know, to kind of love them and leave them, like, let's all, like, you know, girls just want to fuck, pretty much. Is yeah, that's totally much. what it
0: means. <laughs> totally, girls just, yeah, you know, maybe if this song was written today by him, it, the title would be Tinder Girls Just Want to Fuck Up, you know, something like that. Yeah, like, that's what this is. And so, yeah, so it's interesting. And, uh, but she just took it, and she just did, like, a pretty light rewrite on it, And just changed the perspective of it, and the reason why I think it became a feminist anthem is because it's really like this um, celebration of like you know like the playfulness of being a woman. Like it's it doesn't take itself particularly seriously. Her version Mm -hmm. of it, Mm -hmm. and it's really just about how. I mean, this is so dumb to say, but it's like worth saying it's like about how like girls want to have fun and not want to have to worry about shit the same way that men, you know, that it's the <laughs> same way that men, men have the privilege of doing without having to think about it, you know? Right. So why so, don't we listen to uh, let's both listen, versions? Let's listen to these two versions. Here we go. I do want to say the Robert Hazard version, out of all the originals we've listened to, it is the one I like the most. Interesting. Uh, I think it's a really fun arrangement. And I think there's just like a little more of a clarity of musical vision. Yeah, comparatively. Like, I feel like that version of all through the night is like neither here nor there. Yeah. I feel the same way about the money changes everything. It's like, okay, guys with your guitars, like whatever, you know, <laughs> but this, you know, it's like tight. It's got like a really good bounce and snap to it. Like, mm-hmm. um, but then the Cyndi Lauper version, I think, uh, you know, you can really hear in like the rhythm guitar line that like nice like disco funk influence, uh-huh, like sure. it it almost could it almost sounds like a Nile Rodgers style rhythm guitar lead, mm-hmm. which I think is so smart for the song. And then underneath, during the entire song, is that like nice s- synthesizer trill which yeah. just makes the whole song, like, fucking sparkle, you know? Which
1: is, it's on the two and the four. You still get that kind of reggae thing, even though it's not quite at a reggae tempo mm-hmm. or, uh, or like, a dance hall tempo, but it's still on the two and the four. Yes, yeah, which does da, help. Da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> which
0: helps give it that that bright pop. It gives it that sheen, and, like, to me, I think this song, uh, you know, for me and my brain... I was listening to this as a little boy with my parents right alongside the Tom Tom Club. Mm. And I think that like this song is really like it's genius of love's little sister in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, like it's like it's just it's just that kind of love letter to that style of music that like pop reggae dub style. Mm-hmm. But just Polished up a little bit for a bit of a younger audience, you know. Yeah, um, which is cool. You know, it just came out just two years after Genius of Love. Um, so yeah, so I think that that is, and then and then she just sounds like so unburdened singing this. Yeah, like it feels like it feels like there's something in her vocal quality where it feels like she's kind of been set free. Mm -hmm. Something about the rewrite. I think maybe at this point in the recording session, she felt really comfortable with these guys and they were being very supportive of her. Uh And it's just this like big, wonderful vocal. Definitely this vocal feels to me similar to like a Ronnie Spector vocal. Hmm. You know, it's just like, it's kind of big and sweeping. I think the way it's produced as well, like that just nice amount of reverb on her vocal
1: on this. Yeah. Um, and I think vocally she's really, um, dynamic. She's, it's, it's a bit, you know, in, in her live performance and, in also on the recording here, it's like, she's very, um, like theatrical and she can kind of bring out, um, you know, the little bit of that, like Faye, bratty side and, but then also like the big booming, uh, like the power of her Um, voice as well.
0: Yeah. So agreed. Yeah. Like there's just such a range and it's such a dramatic delivery as well. Like that's something about her. She really is very, very good at acting through her songs and figuring out like what's important at what moment. Uh, Totally. And then we've got the, uh, the, the, the bridge chorus of like the bratty women, you know, (laughs) which is just like, so insanely fun and and celebratory Mm -hmm. um and and i think that you know that segues into talking about this video which on rewatch is like obviously it's just like such an 80s staple and it was such an mtv staple at the time as well Mm -hmm. but if you rewatch it um it was shot for not a lot of money yeah um and uh apparently the filmmaker made this um was pals with Lauren Michaels so yeah. Lauren Michaels lent his editing deck
1: to And that's what, how they got that uh like the 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 super high tech turning the women into like an orb a yes. spinning orb <laughs> which has not aged the best in
2: yeah. this in
0: this video um but what what has aged pretty well and is pretty striking is that they used a bunch of the record labels uh uh, uh like assistants and um secretaries as her, and her lawyer is the like uptight guy. Yes, her lawyer <laughs> is the uptight guy. So it feels like a family production. Yeah. And all the all the secretaries are just really lovely and diverse in terms of just like their, their makeup in terms of ethnicity. Like, this isn't a particularly white video, which is really nice. Oh, my God. I mean, this is, like, this is
1: 1980, late 83, early 84 yeah. when they shot this. Yeah. Like, this is, I it's mean, so ahead of its time, way ahead of its time in terms of, like, you know, um, like, thinking about representation in that way. I mean, that's, like... Yeah,
0: and no, I'm guessing it was almost an accident. I'm guessing that it was just, like, yeah, well, these are the women that I work at this label... So hmm. they're going to be in the video and it's really, really exciting. Like it's, yeah. that's the part about the video that when you watch it now, you're like, oh, this is really, there's a really good feel about this. Yeah. Uh And I think it has to do with the, with the eye towards representation. For sure. Uh And then also too, uh, apparently, I, I don't think that this is correct, but I read that Dan Aykroyd makes a cameo in this as Beldar Conehead.
1: Yeah, I didn't see him either. Okay, I'm glad you pointed that
0: out. <laughs> so there's a scene at the end of the video where there's definitely one of the Coneheads in the video in the crowded room where they're all dancing and then they all spill out of her room, which is a Marx Brothers homage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an old Marx Brothers routine. With too many people in the room and they're all spilling out of the room. So that happens at the end of the video. And there is one of the Coneheads, someone dressed as a Conehead, dancing in the video mm-hmm. but like i really watching it i don't think it's ackroyd <laughs> okay. um and i'd like to know if that's true or not i think it's somebody just dressed as one of the heads. Yeah. maybe someone who was able to raid snl's like prop closet right. but i don't think it's him um i think
1: it's someone else um also in the video, I just want to give a quick shout out. Yes. The like prom boyfriend who comes in the end. Yes. Uh, that's Steve Forbert. And I know him. So he's a musician who was around that time. And anyone who's ever been to a record store will recognize him because his albums are in every record store. And this poor guy can't seem to sell his albums to anyone. And everyone is trying to get rid of them. <laughs> I have seen a Steve Forbert album in every fucking record store I've ever been to. And, uh, and that's, sorry, sorry, dude. <laughs> that's funny. Cause in the video,
0: he's trying to offer her a bouquet and try to, yeah, try to go to the prom with her. And she's just like, fuck off. <laughs> like, he just can't catch a break. That guy <laughs> or <Poor> fellow. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then also in this video, and this is going to lead to a longer discussion, uh, Captain Lou Albano's in the video who oh, yeah. is a famous and he's wrestler. in um
1: he's in pretty I think every video from this uh album he plays the cook in the She Bop video yeah um yeah he's all over the place yeah and uh she met him on a plane
0: <laughs> and her manager at the time was a major major fan of uh wrestling and they struck up this friendship uh and then. Uh, you know, because he was in this video and apparently like they were batting around other ideas for other wrestlers to be in this video. And she was like, no, 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 it's got to be Captain Lou. I will only settle (laughs) for Captain Lou because they were, they were pals and they really liked each other. And then this led to her doing all this work for the WWF. Right. Which was like this very early time, like right when
1: she's becoming huge. But
0: this is but the work with the WWF is one of the things that made her so successful mm-hmm. is that the 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 song this song and this video wasn't actually getting a lot of MTV airplay and it was being played during WWF events that she was participating in and then it started receiving a lot of airplay mm. v, uh, via MTV and it's propelled her to another category of stardom. That's um, so funny. Yeah, and it's so weird because once again as we've talked about, she is so queer, uh, or in terms of what she's doing, I feel like there's such a queering as to what she's doing. And she was really embraced by this, like, sort of very straight, uh, you know, very dude, very white subculture at the time, the wrestling. And they they really kind of linked up, and and it was a really beneficial pairing for both of them. For, mm-hmm. for both Cyndi Lauper and for, for the world of wrestling. And, and she helped propel wrestling into the mainstream and make it such the 80s phenomenon that it was.
1: Yeah, Hulk um, Hogan used to play her bodyguard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like It's so crazy. And she helped all the wrestling guys record an album. <laughs> um, and there's a video that I highly recommend you look up because it's just completely nuts that's, all these wrestling guys singing Land of a Thousand Dances together. (laughs) And then she's in the video, like, in disguise, but Meatloaf is in it as well, because why the fuck not, you know? Sure, (laughs) sure. It's so interesting and so strange, but that is sort of what made her so mainstream. But it shows that a lot of audiences, when... Allowed to be exposed to sort of such sub, you know, sort of such weird subculturey content, like would embrace it as long as it was packaged in the right way, right? No, yeah, and and it's such a triumph that this woman became such a pop star, uh, you know, from being, you know, dyeing her hair as a as a teenager and getting fucking rocks thrown at her, being this multi-million, you know, it's such a success story, this multi-million selling artist uh and so so beloved by everybody you know she is,
1: she um, is beloved by every single person
0: yes human on the planet <laughs> yep and she just two quotes from her i think to sort of end our discussion about her um the first one is with a interview that just happened literally in the last few weeks it's literally about like how are you spending your quarantine like it's like stuff like that mm-hmm. but She said about this album in particular, she says, it's funny or actually not funny, but a very famous music person once said to me that 80s was just music for the moment, that it was disposable. And that kind of was the general consensus for a while. So it was great when millennials discovered the 80s and how it's influenced a lot of artists recently We never thought we were making disposable music. And I say we because there is a real sense of community among artists. Authentic and original was celebrated. We celebrated each other. I know for me, my intention was to make music that people would want to listen to for years and years, for decades and decades, long after I was gone. What we all had in common was that music of the 80s was melodic. That was the common thread and why music from the 80s is so good. Melody rules. (laughs)
1: Damn. I know, wow. I,
0: I think it's That's really cool. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and right. Yeah, she's like <laughs> so fucking right about this. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then uh and then the other quote, uh, which is a little older but is just like so wonderful. It's it empowered all us freaks. We stood up and showed them how many of us there really were. There wasn't 100, it wasn't 100% what I wanted. I was only allowed to contribute a few songs that I had written, but the sound and the cover and the videos we made for the album, I was left alone to create those, and that was really cool. I'm proud to have made a record that has lasted so long. Nailed it. I know, cool, right? Very cool. Yeah, smart perspective. She she seems to really have her shit together, which is nice. Not everybody that we've covered on the show does the way that she does. <laughs> yeah, very true.
1: Yeah. Very true.
0: Mm. Well, this has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. <laughs> uh, I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Yeah, and uh, you can uh, follow us on all the social media, as we said. Kyle, what's your Venmo, in case somebody wants to Venmo you for all the work we're doing on these episodes?
1: Oh, yeah, it's Kyle Gordon 2. Great. And uh, mine is at uh,
0: Louie4711. Uh, yeah, jukebox.com. G- we'll do some episode notes for this one. Uh, I think it's important. And um, yeah, you know, we'll be back next week with another album of the week. So uh, we'll see you around like a
2: record. Kick the Jukebox
0: is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kicking a rhyme Talking about music all the time Oh yeah!